It's Tuesday, February 20th, 2024 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Nikki Haley down massively in the polls in her home state of South Carolina, which has its primary this weekend, vows to stay and fight. She has upped her attacks on Donald Trump, and she says she is, quote, far from dropping out. Fair enough. Heartening even. But let us not mistake her eagerness to take it to the Republican frontrunner with a general commitment to truth-telling in every realm. While she ably calls out Trump's falsehoods, that doesn't accept her from the charge that she is still a politician and one who often says things that have little to no basis. In fact, here she was, in fact, on This Week, This Week on ABC. First, you have to talk about what should Joe Biden be doing. First of all, the reason you're seeing America become more isolationist is at no point has Joe Biden had a conversation with the American people about why Ukraine is important. At no point has he had a conversation with him, with the American people, about the terrorist activity that's happening with Israel and why Iran is so dangerous. At no point is he talking about the threats of China. And when you don't talk about those things with the American people, they're going to distance themselves from it. And so Joe Biden has failed on that front. Look, I get the rhythm of the at no point, at no point. You know, if you're a okay rhetorician, you tell yourself that's effective. But he did do it at some point. He did all those things and communicated all those things in many points. In fact, in fact, in fact, not only did Joe Biden have a conversation with the American people about why Israel matters, he had one with the Israeli people and they love him for it. He also, same with Ukraine, talked to us a lot about it, flew there, talked to them about it, came back and talked about it some more. He has talked about the importance of funding Ukraine, I'd say one or two hundred times. Since this war began, I've stood with President Zelensky as I just spent about an hour with him, both in Washington and Kiev. In, in, in Hiroshima, and now in Vilnius, to declare to the world what I say again, we will not waver. And the United States has built a coalition of more than 50 nations to make sure Ukraine defends itself both now and is able to do it in the future as well. Ukraine, Ukraine, oh, Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. And it's the same with China. China's China, China, China. To I applaud China for stepping up. Excuse me. I applaud Canada. I'm, you can tell what I'm thinking. Okay, that end, that end part right there. That might be a thing worth going after him with. But come now, Ambassador Haley. If the reason not to vote for Donald Trump includes that man's dishonesty, I would say the best strategy to pursue your case against Joe Biden is not with words and charges that can accurately be described as dishonest. On the show today, can Donald Trump pay and how? And I mean that and how both ways. And how, but also and how. But first, with two major wars ongoing and countless other conflicts to resolve, it feels like a good time to sit down with someone who understands how to resolve a conflict. The Vanderpump Rules' Tom Sandoval. No, I don't even know if that's an apt reference. Who I am talking to is much better than that guy. He's William Urey, one of the world's leading negotiation specialists. He has a new book out today, Possible. How we survive and thrive in an age of conflict. William Murray up next.
William Urey is one of the great negotiators in world history. His new book is called Possible, How We Survive and Thrive in an Age of Comfort, Northern Ireland, the FARC in Colombia, South Africa. He's been there. He's talked to them. He's helped them along. He now comes on the gist to solve my internal problems. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Yuri, Professor Yuri, Dr. Yuri. Welcome to the gist. Yeah, no, please call me William. Mike, it's a real, real pleasure to, to speak with you. So the book starts with an epigram by Soren Kierkegaard, possibly the most pessimistic intellect in the history of intellectualism. And I have to say, before we uh, started recording, we were talking a little bit about Abraham. I think the quote, hope is a passion for the possible, is one of those in the general category of he never really said it or he never really meant it. It's taken from fear and trembling. And he talks a lot about uh, Abraham negotiation with the Lord. And I don't think that Kierkegaard was being overly optimistic. He was being very religious, and I don't think you'd actually find that phrase in fear and trembling. But my question is, does that really matter? Or are you really trying to get, say, the reader into a certain mindset? And by associating this great thinker who they may, might not have read all the works of, you do your job. Well, that's a good question, Mike. I would say, first of all, you know, being a possibilist doesn't necessarily mean you're being an optimist. You know, I've, I've spent 45 years wandering around in the world's toughest, so a lot of the world's toughest conflicts from, you know, the Middle East to the Cold War to Chechnya, Yugoslavia, Colombia, you name it. And people say, well, after all that, are you, you know, are you an optimist? Or are you a pessimist? And I like to say now I'm a possibilist. You know, I believe in human possibility. Why? Because I've seen it happen with my own eyes. I've seen the worst of human beings, but I've also seen the best of human beings. Possibility has no positive or negative valence. I mean, we think it does, but then we, we, you could apply it to Putin invading Ukraine. I don't think it's possible he would do it. And then he did it. Or some of the great uh, catastrophes and uh, human rights abuses in the world. I didn't think it was possible what they would do in that town. So it's probably good to be a possibilist. It's just a way of saying I'm a realist. It is. It is it's, and, you know, possibilists, they look... We look they look at negative possibilities, you know, yeah, of, yeah. of what, what are the negative possibilities? And then we use it to motivate us to look for the positive possibilities. And that's, I think, what we need to do. We can't put our heads in the sand. We, we need to look realistically what's happening. And then, but pessimism, I find, you know, which it's so easy to be pessimistic nowadays with everything, you know, we live in this age of conflict with rising around us everywhere. It's easy to be pessimistic, but the but that's our worst enemy because pessimism often leads to become self-confirming. You know, as uh, I think Henry Ford once famously said, "If you think you can, and if you think you can't, you're right." Yes. So, in order for a successful negotiation to happen, does each side have to does each side have to be exhausted or somewhat exhausted? Well. I th not necessarily, <laughs> I would say, but in, in, you know, difficult conflicts, sometimes there's, uh, like really, you know, warring situations, you know, they reach what my, what a colleague of mine calls a hurting stalemate where they yeah. kind of reach a situation where neither can kind of move. And then there's kind of a learn, a hard learning process of there's got to be a better way to do this. You know, I saw that happen in like Northern Ireland or South Africa, you know, where, they were seemed to be impossible conflicts. They reached a kind of hurting standpoint where each side saw that, you know, w trying to win was just leading to everybody losing. And then out of that 
comes an aha, like, well, maybe there's a better way. And then they sit down and they negotiate. And then there's a discovery that, hey, maybe through negotiation, we can each get our essential needs met. And that's that's the real aha. That's the transformative part of a possibility. Right. So I have been monitoring some of your media appearances. And uh, about two years ago, you were being called upon often to give your take on the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And you talked about the possibility of conflict resolution. But I remember thinking at the time, well, we have to get to a point of close to stalemate or or hurting, or however, or exhaustion. We're a little bit premature if the Ukrainians are having these, at the time, what seemed like amazing uh, odds-defying successes on the battlefield. They're not going to want to negotiate. Uh, they don't perceive it as in their self-interest. And if Putin is not, it's going to take him a while to accept the reality that the war wasn't going as he thought it would. Now, maybe there's a possibility of negotiation. Uh, you've been asked a lot about the latest conflict in Gaza. And I think that each side probably perceives themselves as still having gains to make on the battlefield. And so that, I mean, you mentioned Northern Ireland and South Africa, and I think Colombia and the FARC were a big example of this. When there are gains to be made on the battlefield, literal or metaphorical, you could take it in the business world, that seems seems to me a very inhospitable environment for negotiation. Is that right? It's inhospitable for a negotiation for any kind of settlement, but there's obviously always negotiation. You mean right now, even in Ukraine, they're negotiating about the exchange of prisoners and negotiating about grain. So in a funny way, in a way that we don't perceive, negotiation goes on all the time. Mm. But in terms of what you're talking about, in terms of really trying to to end the war, then then you're right. It it takes us – there's a kind of a – a learning process. The truth is, in most of these situations that I've seen, you know, we think we're going to win, you know, and and you know, we might win a battle and we win another battle, but in the end, just about everybody loses the war. Um, and and the, and actually, it's not just both sides that lose the war, but the community, the innocents, the, the the everyone around them loses. And so, I mean, that's what really motivated me in the very beginning to kind of get into the field of negotiation was just thinking there's got to be a more creative, we can use our creativity, our collaboration, our, our abilities to, to come up with better ways to deal with our differences than blowing the whole world to smithereens. Historically, do those micro negotiations along the way, you mentioned Ukrainian grain, there was one round of actual hostage release in Gaza. Do those often set the table and provide the template for the greater negotiation when it comes? They can, uh, because they establish relationships, they establish channels. You know, a lot of these negotiations it doesn't happen in the open. It happens through back channels. It happens through these, you know, confidential, often secret negotiations where you're out of the limelight. And those back channels get strengthened during the process of things like the, a hostage negotiation. Yeah. What's interesting to me, among the interesting things are you're an anthropologist and you're a psychologist and psychiatrist a little bit, but just the methods, the almost business school methods of negotiation that don't come from, you know, reflecting on our shared humanity, more of a strategy, a clever strategy, an end around our psychology. That, that's interesting to me. Like the, was it the Camp David negotiations where they didn't let the Israelis and the um, Palestinians directly negotiate with each other? They just thought, uh, they just had them 
critique 23 series of uh, proposals until they got to the final one, which couldn't be changed? Yeah, that was the, actually, that was the Israelis and the Egyptians at the time. Yeah. And the right, 1978 right. Camp David. And yeah, absolutely. That's, that was, uh, that was a, a, a great example of, you know, we use a lot of creativity in, you know, creating better software or hardware or whatever, but we can use the same creativity in trying to come up with better software for negotiation. And in that particular case, the two leaders, uh, Anwar Sadat of Egypt and Menachem Begin of Israel, couldn't get along. <laughs> so you kept them, you know, after the first few days, you kept them apart. But then they went back and forth and used what I would call wizards. And <laughs> in other words, lower level people who are very, you know, can get along with each other, you know, uh, technically knowledgeable about the subject, who can often explore possibilities that, that their leaders could not explore. But then they could bring those ideas back to their leaders for a final okay. Right. So interpersonal bonding among the leaders, that'd be great. But you could still get to a, an historic uh, uh, Nobel Peace Prize winning negotiation absent that. Absolutely. You know, like Nelson Mandela and Frederick de Klerk also didn't get along. But lower down, there was uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, actually, who was, a, who was an aide to Mandela, who's now the president of South Africa. And there was Rolf Meyer, who... When negotiations would break off, there was a lot of political violence. These negotiations are often very difficult. They would meet together with their teams and try to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we solve, solve this issue? How do we deal with this issue? And it's those behind-the-scenes, back-channel, wizard-like conversations that I think are essential to the success of an ultimate negotiation. Yeah, it's also very instructive because even in Israel, there's a constant complaint is, you know, the Palestinians have no Nelson Mandela. And Nelson Mandela has been elevated to this status where you could be convinced that if there isn't such a uh, sui generis individual, and just think about what the words or phrase sui generis means, there's not going to be. But if there isn't one in the conflict, you're not going to have a solution. I mean, you've written a lot about the amazing personal qualities of Mandela and how so much of his mindset and what he taught himself in Robben Island um, translated to being a, a successful negotiator, but he wasn't perfect. He didn't get along with his adversary. There were still ways to, and the necessity of working around Nelson Mandela. I think that's a really important lesson. Yeah, very, very important. And I don't think, you know, leaders are important. Leadership is, is vital, but, but, you know, in the end, like for example, in the South Africa example, and what I noticed is in Northern Ireland too, it's the mobilization of the community. I mean, there was the business community, the trade unions, the faith leaders, the women's movement, the university students, the society as a whole came together as what I call a third side, which is, you know, like uh, the, the side of the community and backed by the international community. And that community uh, effort is really what takes it across the line. It's not just the, the leaders at the top making a deal. It really takes the involvement of everybody. The community can cut both ways. In Northern Ireland, the community of um, mothers bonding with each other whose sons were, were lost to the troubles and the violence, that was really important. But I think of many negotiations where each negotiator, each side says, 
well, I could do this, but I have my public and my public would either vote me out of office or possibly, you know, seek to assassinate me or I couldn't get away with it. Sometimes they're right. They have a correct assessment of their public. Sometimes it's they're just have the wrong assessment or they're being um, uh, self-sabotaging or it's a um, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But how does the community uh, what you're talking about differ from this concept of being of negotiators being hemmed in by what the uh, the people that they perceive themselves to be accountable to. How does how do those two groups and constituencies different in your conception? Yeah, the third side to me, it's like we often approach negotiation. It's always two sides. It's union versus management, you know, sales versus manufacturing, husband versus wife, whatever it is, one party against another. What we don't see is there's a larger context which is the community, which actually has interests as well, uh, community interests. You know, what about the sake of the kids? What about the sake of the future? What about the larger sake of the family and the workplace? That's the third side. What you're talking about, though, is the constituency. You know, every negotiation, we tend to focus on that one central table where the two sides are, you know, Israelis and Palestinians are meeting. But actually, what I've found in negotiations is that often the problem isn't at that table, it's with it's the internal negotiations. There's always three tables in a negotiation, the external table and the two internal tables. And oftentimes the problem is among Israelis or among Palestinians. And you've got to have that three, you've got to have th- those three negotiations. And for that, to me, this is why I like to begin any negotiation with what I call a victory speech. <laughs> Try to imagine the other side's victory speech. In other words, do a little thought experiment. Imagine the other side has said yes to your proposal. They're going to do what you want them to do. Now imagine they have to go back to their constituency, the people right. you're talking about, and justify it. And what are their three key talking points? How are they going to say, this was a victory for us to accept that proposal? If you can't write that victory speech persuasively, then you know we got work to do. So to me, it's like start at the end and work backwards from that victory speech. Help them deliver that victory speech. Was that, I think you used that technique with Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un, right? Right. <laughs> Tell me how that played out. Well, yeah, I mean, there it was uh, early 2017. Kim Jong-un, you know, Obama had told Trump, this is the most dangerous situation, I'm leaving you. And Kim Jong-un was busily testing ICBMs, uh, nuclear weapons and everything. And Trump said, this won't happen. And they started going at it, hammer and tongs and fire and fury, and I'll eliminate you and little rocket man and vile. I mean, there was a lot to the point where experts and even Trump himself thought, you know, the odds of war were going up to close to 50% of a war that would be catastrophic because, you know, the first use of nuclear weapons since Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And uh, so my colleagues and I just, you know, okay, can we write a victory speech for Trump and can we write a victory speech for Kim in which they decide not to go to war just as an yeah. exercise? And, you know, for Trump, you know, it was like, I, this had to be the deal of the century. You know, this is going to deal the century. I saved the world and kept America safe and didn't spend a penny. Yeah. For Kim, it was Trump was hard. easy. Trump's always giving victory speeches. You know, <laughs> tariffs are easy and we uh, built the wall. And yes, everything that happens, he could frame it into a victory speech. Right. right. But Kim was harder. And, the you know, no one knew anything about Kim. And the only person I could figure out who knew anything about Kim went on the web was, uh, was, uh, was Dennis Rodman. Sure. <laughs> and sure. so he was the only American who'd really met Kim. So I, I you know, 
tried all my connections to try to get a meeting with Dennis Rodman so I could really hear him out. And it took a long, it took a while of this, you know, six degrees of separation, finally get there and, you know, and he's, you know, <laughs> he's not there and whatever, but where's the there? Where are you meeting him? I, I, I met him at a friend's house in LA. He was staying uh-huh. with a friend and they said, come on, kind of have pizza. And I showed up and he was out partying and he, he but I caught him the sure. next morning. The friend said, you stay over the night. And he said, bad day, man. Bad. But then he told me he had a lot of insight into Kim. He had, uh, you know, Kim had befriended him when he went on an exhibition game to North Korea to play basketball. And he had held Kim's baby. And one thing that was just kind of a nugget, he said, you know, Kim once told me that his dream one day was to walk down Fifth Avenue with Dennis Rodman, go to Madison Square Garden and watch the Knicks play the Bulls. Yeah. And that was kind of a little insight into Kim's fascination with the West, his his openness to being engaged by the West. And it didn't mean that, you know, you meet, you sit down and, and have peace, but it was like an, an opening. And and so <laughs> you could you could and see there, that by the way, by the way, there's common ground right there. Fifth Avenue looming large in the metaphors of both Donald Trump and Kim Jong un and the possibilities that Fifth Avenue suggests. For one, it's a way to see a Nick game. For another, it's a way to uh, shoot someone and get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> so in any case, that victory speech, you know, the vict- you know, you could see a victory speech for Kim in which you could say, you know, we got safe, we got the respect we want, we're engaging with, you know, we're gonna be the next Asian tiger. And so even though it looked very grim and dim at that time, there was the there was the opportunity there for what actually happened a year later, which was the two met in Singapore. Now, did they resolve the whole conflict? No. But did the risk of nuclear war go down? Did the atmosphere change Dr- dramatically? Yes, from you know maybe fifty percent chance of war to to less than one percent. Yeah, and I do remember Trump as an inveterate negotiator g- saying these things that would please Kim—not just the personal compliments, but saying things like, as a developer, I look at the coastline of North Korea and think about the possibilities of luxury hotels. So that was good. I do have a question about Dennis Rodman. Does he have a self-perception of uh, himself as being this fulcrum of world affairs? (laughs) The only person in America who really can crack the nut that is Kim Jong-un? Well, you know, the thing is, you know, just the psychology of it all is what I realize is that Kim... Uh, that 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 Rodman, Kim, and Trump all had something in common psychologically, yeah. which is they they had a kind of reputation of being bad boys, of, of, of people underestimating them, and they were out to prove the world wrong about them, and that's that's the kind of psychological ground in which they could meet and 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 empathize with each other, right. In some of the conflicts, as an outsider, I would say to myself, Northern Ireland, what are you doing? Can't we get past this? Can't you see? I would say I'm not that knowledgeable about the FARC in Colombia. I just see that it's going on for so long. It doesn't seem that one side is going to gain an advantage or not. And we need something to change the dynamic. But are there counterexamples? Are there examples of very successful negotiations where things didn't seem to be stuck at a stalemate, where either the participants might have said, actually, through violence, we can still, uh, we can still make gains, and, and yet a successful negotiation occurred? Well, I would say, I mean, I, I would say yes. I mean, in a lot of situations, you can actually 
advanced. I mean, like take South Africa. I mean, there was no reason South Africa had the military power. The the, the whites, the 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 apartheid government had the military power to stay in power for thirty years more. Uh, that that was the estimate. But they decided that okay. But thirty right. years from now, what kind of South Africa is there going to be? Right. I mean, we're going to have thirty years of civil war and so on, and just economically, morally, uh, just socially, it didn't make sense. So. They decided, no, it's better to cut our losses now and make a deal. That is William Urey talking about his new book, Possible, How We Survive and Thrive in an Age of Conflict. Our conversation, as you might be able to tell, did not end there. In fact, my next question for Mr. Urey about how to apply his philosophy and tactics to U.S. politics doesn't have easy answers, but he has good-sounding ones. Our Pesca Plus members will get to hear all the answers. Pesca Plus costs just $9 a month. Subscribers don't have to listen to ads. They get extended cuts of interviews with incredible people like William Urey. Become a member. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com to hear it all. And now the spiel. When Donald Trump was hit with over a third of a million dollar ruling, the reactions were, wow, that is quite a bit of money. And the questions were, will this hurt his image? And also, can he even pay? With a perfect distillation of the immediate reaction, here is this Q&A between David Muir and Jonathan Carl on ABC. Does this poke holes in that image for those who support Donald Trump? Uh, obviously too soon to know. But again, this is a big part of the image that he presents on the campaign trail. Well, Trump's entire political life uh, is an outgrowth of his contention that he is the greatest, most successful business genius, that he is fabulously wealthy because he is fabulously successful in business and would bring the same uh, 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 acumen, business acumen to, uh, to, to the government. But what you're seeing here with, with this uh, in, in incredible judgment, again, getting accusing him, first of all, of exaggerating his wealth, but also... Um, getting to the point where uh, there's a real question whether or not he could even pay these fines uh, on top of the fines uh, that, that he is forced to pay in the E. Jean Carroll cases. Can he even pay? Well, that was political reporter Jonathan Carl asking. Here's reporter and Pulitzer Prize winning finance expert David K. Johnston brought on CNN to further plumb the depths of Trump's bank account. He can't borrow from any bank registered in New York State, and every big bank in the world, pretty much, that deals in the Western world is registered here. I mean, Deutsche Bank, for example, his favorite lender, they're registered in New York. They are off limits to him. Uh, so it's going to be very difficult for him to raise any money. And that seems like quite a bind, does it not? On MSNBC, Ari Melbourne dedicated a 12-minute segment, which is their standard segment length, a 12-minute segment to proving the point that Trump will find it difficult to pay. He set it all up this way. If he appeals, as he knows himself from past losses, he still has to put up huge sums of money. He has to set aside the money amount that he owes now or get a bond for it or put up properties as collateral. That's how it works for everybody in our legal system. Now, that huge loss on Friday is a much larger penalty than most businesses ever pay, are ever fined, ever. 
That is true. It is a big fine. We knew that over $400 million, including the interest, is a big fine. We probably would have been able to figure that out even without the consultation of lawyer-turned-MSNBC anchor Ari Melber. But the question is, is it difficult for him to raise the money? Again, let us reset by reminding us all of Jonathan Carl's question. ...his wealth, but also um, uh, getting to the point where uh, there's a real question whether or not he could even pay these fines. And there is a real answer. And that answer is yes. It really is yes, he could pay. Remember Ari Melber's phrase? He has to set aside the money that he owes now or get a bond or put up properties as collateral. That middle part that was maybe a little bit glided over, that's how he's going to pay. The bond. He'll get a surety bond, which means that you put down 5% cash or assets, liquid assets, and the bond issuer, knowing you're good for it, puts up the bulk of what you're liable for. And once you do that, you're able to pursue your appeal. In Donald Trump's case, it's 20 or $30 million if you want to include the E. Jean Carroll decision. And Donald Trump will then be able to pursue the appeals, which I don't think he's going to win about E. Jean Carroll, but with the Judge Engeron ruling, he may, and it may very well last for years. Donald Trump, according to the AP and even MSNBC's own reporting, indicates that he can easily, if not happily, afford $22-30 million. According to the New York Times, the Times review of Mr. Trump's reserves included his most recent financial disclosure, which shows him having anywhere from $256 million to $936 million in cash, as well as stocks, bonds, and other investments he could convert to cash. Letitia James, the Attorney General of New York, looked at Trump's financial documents, which said that he had in the high 200s, and she doubted that. She thought he had in the low 200s. But the point is, he can pay 20 to $30 million cash. But guess what? He doesn't even have to. The bonds are out there. All of the media who I quoted, who we should note, do not want Donald Trump to be able to pay his fines, know that the bonds are out there. Even media who would love if Donald Trump can't pay, even the ones that do the reporting, find out about surety bonds or surety insurance and the 5%-ish down option, and they know it's true. Maybe they don't want to believe it's true. Maybe they report it might not be true, but it is true. Here was Kara Swisher on CNN talking about a conversation she had with E. Jean Carroll's lawyer. She's not entirely clear if he has the money um, to pay any of it, because when he put the bond up for the last case, he paid cash of his own money. He did not get a bond, which you can also do, because what, what I what seem to understand is he doesn't bond. He can't get a bond from people who do that. Yeah, he can. Well, that's at least what Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, and others who talk to people actually in the surety industry say. Surety, you can't be serious. We are serious. And serious about still another means of Donald Trump putting up the money to get to appeal the ruling. He can get a, and this is a technical term. You might not have heard of surety bonds before now. This is an even more complex term. He could get a rich guy, foreign or domestic, a rich guy to lend him the money. And isn't that a great development for democracy? Right now, act now on the open market. There is an opportunity to rent the front runner to become leader of the free world. Act now. 
It won't be easy for Donald Trump to get all this money together. I mean, it won't be emotionally easy. I think the money can quite simply be moved around or produced in a bank account. He may throw lots of ketchup at the wall at having to do it, but an individual with hundreds of millions of dollars on hand and in the low billions in assets will, of course, be able to find up a way to scrounge up $30 million that will allow him to appeal and in the process further his appeal to his base, which, let's face it, will not suffer a bit. And that goes back to answer the first question or first assumption from up top. It was, can he pay? Yes, even though we'd all like it. If it ruins him, it won't. Can he pay? Yes. And will it affect his political prospects? No, not among the people that will never be dissuaded that he's anything other than the richest, smartest, kindest, most munificent individual on earth. Not even a $350 million disgorgement will be found disgorging among those Americans for whom Donald Trump's hucksterism is the feature, not the fraudulent flaw. And that's it for today's show that just is produced by the quaint Mallards. Corey Wara is the producer and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects for Peach Fish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oom Peru, G. Peru, and thanks for listening.